You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger, Banking on Disaster. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. It's good to be back after a week off, and it's especially good to be coming to you from a place of, if not quite celebration, at least relief at the outcome of the election. It's something that's been hanging over us all, I know, and although we still have a long way to go until the inauguration in January, and God only knows what kind of shenanigans we'll see the next two months... The end of the Trump era is finally in sight. (sighs) My guest this week is Memphis musician and journalist Alex Green. Alex is a member of the Raining Sound and Alex Green and the Rolling Head Orchestra. He's also played in a bunch of cool bands over the years, including Big Ass Truck, Tab Falco's Panther Burns, and The Subtractions. He's the music editor of the Memphis Flyer, a job he got over me, to be honest. Not getting that was a major heartbreak to me at the time, and it ultimately was one of the reasons that I left Memphis. But I'm completely good now with how everything turned out, and it was a lot of fun digging into it with Alex during our conversation, and finally hearing his side of the story. Before we do that, I want to play a clip of one of Alex's tunes from his band, The Rolling Head Orchestra. It comes off the album American Elegy, which was released in 2018, and you can find at Alex Green, that's green with an E on the end, G-R-E-E-N-E, alexgreen.bandcamp.com. This is Remember. The planet all in space is wheeling Through night the refugees are stealing The neighbors all have gone The train Now, here's me and Alex Green. Thanks so much for joining me on the show, Alex. Oh, you're very welcome, JD. Yeah, it's good to hear from you. Good to talk to you again. It's uh, It's been a month or two, I guess, since last we spoke. Right. And uh, you were telling me all about this podcast as I was, I had my reporter hat on at that time. <laughs> yes. And I had my guest, my interviewee hat on. So now we're, now we're switching, <laughs> switching roles. Yes, the tables are turned. <laughs> Finally. Okay, now I'm under the microscope. <laughs> well, uh, first things first, we're recording this uh, at a, you know shortly after noon on Saturday, and it's just been announced that Joe Biden is um, you know by mo- by all the networks that he's going to be that he's the president elect. So, how are you feeling with that? Are you relieved? I am relieved that the the news media jumped 
on board with the what was obvious. Uh, I think they waited a little too long, uh, almost in deference to these frivolous lawsuits. And uh, I expect there will be some uh, fuckery to come with uh, the GOP or the Trump administration challenging with even more for frivolous lawsuits, uh, lacking evidence and completely without merit. Uh, so, um, I, it does seem though, like the vote counters were ready for controversy and they really are, uh, quite assured in saying how certain they are of the transparency and the legitimacy of the counting process in all these states. I've heard secretaries of state saying that, you know, through various uh, contested states. So I'm uh, super happy. I'm going to have a few, uh, I'm going to tie one on (laughs) tonight. (laughs) And uh, then, uh, you know, we'll just see how long it takes to tamp down the uh, BS coming out of the Trump administration. Yeah, I imagine that it's going to be, you know, a conti- you know, a pretty continued wave of bullshit uh, for a while still. But um, yeah, it it still at least it does feel like we can finally breathe at this point a little bit. It's like that old song by the Fugs. Uh, Ross Johnson and I often sing it together at the bar. River of shit, <laughs> river of shit. Flow I think I've heard him sing on, this. Flow on, river of shit. That's all, <laughs> and it flows from the White House down to your lawn, and it's a great uh, rant. Um, Ross Johnson, friend of the show. <laughs> yes, official. <laughs> friend of the podcast yeah <laughs> uh so you know i'm sure we met each other before this but would you say the first time we really hung out would that have been the like maybe the low life leaker show which is you know yes. sort of related yeah the fundraiser for the victims of the bowling green massacre yeah i think that was really uh that predated the monkeys tribute right or, or maybe not actually I, it's a bit I jumbled it, i have it written down in my notes monkeys or bowling green first yeah so. <laughs> yeah they were around the same time uh i think the monkeys was like a, a month later but i could be wrong and uh yeah in fact the monkeys I'm pretty was a more, sure it was a more fun it, show for me yeah yeah the uh the low life leakers was plagued by weird sound and, you know, uh, you know, who can blame them at the club because there were just so many people going on and off stage. And, but it was very gratifying to have a, a moment of political music and kind of wryly political, you know, it wasn't all just belting out, uh, Phil Oaks songs, but you know, it it was kind of clever and fun and unpredictable political stuff. So that was, that's the perfect blend in my book. And I I love that night just for that, even if maybe the sound was not great, but yeah, I mean, I, 
I wish a few things had gone differently about that night in general, but, um, you know, overall, you know, we, I made, made some friends doing that band and had a good time in general. So, you know, I'm not hating on it. Yeah. Yes. It was for a good cause too. Of course, those poor people victimized at Bowling Green, (sighs) the, the poor truth was laid a, a victim of that massacre. What was what was our slogan for that? It was something like "never, never again, never, never before, never again." Or something. <laughs> <laughs> something ridiculous. Yes, something appropriately ridiculous. But you were uh, correct. I think the monkeys had just great material. All the bands were working with, you know, everyone playing monkeys tunes. It was great fun. I know the subtractions had a blast doing that. Um, yeah, I think the only person who had a bad time that night was the sound guy because he was mad about us switching and then switching back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, man, that was a great night. And it was cool to have um, Jeffrey and the Pacemakers do their like Beatles and British Invasion show like right before we did our thing, too. It was just a really, really cool night in general. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so great to uh, it's kind of freeing in a way to uh just do covers you know i love tribute shows like that or the whole band the subtractions was premised on that you know we uh just wanted to focus on playing all the covers that we never got to play in other bands and um there's something very freeing about that you don't have to worry about is this song any good to begin with? Or, you know, all those insecurities as a composer you might have. It's just, by God, I know this is good. It's by the monkeys or. Yeah. Blame Neil Diamond if you don't (laughs) like it. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. And there was quite a streak of great tributes in Memphis for a while. The Bowie, uh, just the ones I was involved in, uh, the one to, to Bowie, Rolling yeah, the Stones, Stones, Talking Heads, the band. I know that there's a annual band tribute too. That's pretty, yep, pretty cool. Yep, and uh, there's a uh, a band with Robert Allen Parker that just does Almond Brothers. Uh, and of course, I'd say the king of the tribute bands is the MDs here in Memphis, who do such an amazing job of uh, bringing Booker T and the MGs tunes to life. Uh, just so great. And then they even write their own material uh, with their, yeah, you should interview one of them about this, like Landon or someone about uh, imagining what if the Beatles had recorded revolver at stacks as almost happened uh, and then Booker T and the MGs did a version of Revolver, just like they later did in reality uh, for Abbey Road. Um, so they reimagined all of Revolver in a uh, MGs style, and it was just amazing. Ooh, is that is that is that online somewhere? I would I would love to see that. No, I I I think they hope to put an album out, uh, but. I, it was a live concert. Well, they did a few of them uh, uh, right up to the end of last year. But I, 
I don't know what's recorded. They might just have little teaser videos or something. Yeah, yeah. But well, uh, while 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 we're still talking about other bands, I think this might be a good uh, chance to uh, talk about what is essentially, I guess, maybe your day job, and that's being the music editor of the Memphis Flyer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, which full disclosure is a job I tried to get for myself. Oh, right. <laughs> but, yeah. Let's hash it out right here and now, JD. Come yeah, on. Let's, let's smack do down. I, you know, <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it's pretty obvious that I was ne- like, if I was ever, I mean, I was obviously disappointed not to get it, but I was never like, I was never upset or, you know, mad at you in any way, shape or form. Oh, so, God. Yeah. You know, so you were the picture of graciousness. And uh, for that, I thank you. And, um, you know, it's probably kind of random. Uh, we're, we're both pretty skilled as wordsmiths. So uh, but I am uh, I must say it served me well in, in, in a very desperate time. Uh, I had just been laid off uh, from a salary job uh, helping to uh, manage a organic farming nonprofit. And uh, then this opening for the music editor came up. This was in 2017. And uh, also at the same time, um, Corey Brannon gave me a ring asking if I'd play bass for a couple months on his tour. So it was kind of that point uh, between the writing and playing and touring. Uh, and of course, while I'm touring, I can write and submit copy while I'm on the road. Uh, so I kind of leapt into this more creative life and I'm just so that I've been able to make it work. You know, this is a classic gig economy of juggling uh, journalism uh, and music and before lockdown, you know, playing gigs as a sideman, whether with Earl the Pearl on Beale Street or Dale Watson down at Hernando's Hideaway, you know, this and that going on a short tour with the raining sound. And then uh, giving piano lessons, which I also love. So I kind of juggle those three things, and so far, so good. Knock on wood. Is it challenging for you in any way? Because I sort of felt like it was difficult for me at times to be both a music writer and a musician in Memphis. Does that ever, do those those wires ever get crossed for you? Uh, Once in a blue moon, like, uh, I'll never forget hanging out with the dead soldiers in Austin. I was down there playing with Corey, but I was also reporting on Memphis bands playing South by Southwest. And I don't know, as musicians do, we were all just hanging out after their set. Uh, and you know, some people talking shit about other people. And then they were like, Oh, wait a minute. He writes for the flyer now. And I, you know, I had to reassure them that I, you know, uh, keep things close to my vest. Uh, you know, I, my lips are sealed unless I am absolutely sure that it's cool, you know, that someone wants to share that. So usually, uh, it's pretty clear. And, you know, I have a dedicated interview with someone if I'm going to have them on the record for a story. And anyway, I don't tend to jump onto controversies or I don't use 
my position as an editor to stir shit up. I'm mostly about shining a spotlight on local musicians because I know how much it means to local bands uh, just to have a bit of ink about what they do. And so I try to offer that. And uh, really, I can do that because there's so much music that I like around here. I can just pick and choose amongst the stuff I like, and I don't have to get on the rock critic trip, you know, of uh, ragging on this or that band. Yeah, the, the, the flyer used to be a lot harsher in that respect. When I started over there, we used to have a thing called the moment of truth. And uh, several of my first uh, Memphis Flyer assignments were doing these moment of truths where they would basically send me out to see some band that, you know, some brand new band that no one had ever heard of and then pass judgment on them in the paper like the next. (laughs) And and that, you know, if you're being honest, you don't love every single band that you see. And so that 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 those were always a little bit hairy for me to do. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, there's a certain mindset of uh, of the rock critic, of course, that I admit, you know, I've vicariously enjoyed as a reader, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Shit talk is fun to read. Yeah. And coming of age in New York in the 80s, where I went to college, you know, I was totally about the Consumer Guide by Robert Criscow, and he was just uh, deadly in skewering people he just didn't hold with aesthetically. Uh, in retrospect, I think he, that's some of the most pompous shit you could imagine. You know, I'm, I'm glad there are selective and critical critics out there and they're not just doing PR, but, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I guess a turning point came with me when I saw his one line where he, noted the raining sound after our first or second record, probably after Tom time bomb high school. And he just said, ah, white stripes without the poetry. That's <laughs> really stupid. If and, anything, and, it's quite the opposite. Yeah, I know. And to, to call us anywhere near the white stripes who are totally bringing the riff rock and, you know, post neo led zeppelin whatever uh and and we were so not about that in the raining sound so that just you know having him chime in on something i knew so intimately and i could just see how very wrong and misguided he was it just uh blew the whole thing out of the water for me and uh i i tried to do more reported reportage like how did this get made? Who are these people? And I'm focused on the tracks I think are real standouts or, uh, you know, and it's generally uh, more uh, an inquiry rather than, uh, you know, critique. Like I'm on some transcendent plane of pure aesthetics. Yeah, I I was never comfortable passing judgment on people that I was going to have to see at the high tone the next day. And I I definitely feel like that doing that, you know, over time sort of, uh, I don't know, tainted the waters for me a little bit, if that's if that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, I can can imagine. Um, But but anyway, I mean, I think it all worked out for the best. I mean, if I had 
I would not be in Chicago. I would not be hosting this show, obviously, if things had worked out differently. So I think it's pretty clear to me that everything worked out the way it was supposed to. Yeah. And Biden won. So yeah. we can add yeah. that at Double the end bonus. of every sentence today. <laughs> um well, let's 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 get into some of the music you've made over the years, and and you've already mentioned them a couple times. So let's let's start with the raining sound. Um, I actually saw you guys on that uh, tour that you mentioned in March at the Sleeping Village here in Chicago, which was a sold out show, and it was it was amazing. You guys, you know, you guys definitely still got it. Well, thank you. Yeah, boy, we just clicked right into it. Uh, yeah, we had. One long rehearsal before we left uh, and, um, you know, kind of a whole afternoon of going through numbers. But for the most part, it just kind of all came back to us. And to be fair, I guess the last time we had toured had been uh, 17 years previous to this year. But uh, we had played occasionally, like in 2010, there was a kind of Antenna Club reunion um, or maybe it was the second one in 2011. And then we headlined Goner Fest in 2016. And we played around Memphis that year in other contexts as well, like uh, down at Harbor Town, for instance. So, uh, you know, we had dusted off the old gems and uh, it, it wasn't too much of a leap to make it happen again. But, but we were thrilled, of course, to be doing it on the road, uh, which had not happened for 17 years with, with all of us together. So yes, uh, it's a great band. I love Greg Cartwright's songs and maybe even more importantly, his voice. It's hard to separate one from the other, but th- it was one thing that jumped out at me when we started in 20. 20- I'm sorry, in 2000, uh, was just his voice is very unaffected, you know, and that was coming out of the 90s, which was like the decade of affectations in singers, uh, like from Pearl Jam or... Uh, sure, the Lane Staley, Eddie Vedder voice. <laughs> exactly, which so became so omnipresent. Um so anyway, Greg, you know, kept a bit of the edge from his oblivions uh, shouting, but also was quite melodic and wrote these beautiful songs. So I've always been very thrilled to be playing those songs. And, you know, right as we started in 2000, late 2000, uh, we were trying to play all of our songs i know i had a couple that the band learned and we played at the high tone a few times and i remember going back to nebraska that christmas of 2000 and thinking about it on the the drive back and just thinking how of a piece all of greg cartwright's songs were and we should just make that his deal which it kind of was anyway it was really he assembled this all together but so you know i came back and i said let's just drop my tunes from the set list i'm going to pursue those on my own they're the, you know they're a little different vibe and uh my lyrics are a little more wordy or uh, 
I don't know, you know, th there's just these differences in tone and texture. And, uh, you know, I think that was a good call. We ran with it and made four studio albums uh, that I'm just so proud of. I couldn't be prouder of. And that's going to be uh, five studio albums. Uh, now uh, I'm listening to the Masters for uh, a new record, the original lineup, uh, plus with an assist from Graham Winchester on some drums. Um, we're uh, releasing a new Raining Sound album next spring. Maybe I, th uh, I think this has been announced, so it's not quite a scoop, but tell all the people, wake the town, tell the people far and wide. <laughs> I know that, um, you know, Greg was touring in the Raining Sound previously with a different lineup. So has it been, I mean, has he told you like what, what made him decide or maybe it was a group decision to get the, the OG band back together? Like what was the, was there a, a inspiration behind that? Um, I didn't really uh, uh, go there. I think it was mostly... Um, just it may have had something to do with the pandemic and quarantine and he wasn't really planning a tour or you know and it had been a while since he got together with the guys from the Javons in Brooklyn and and Dave Amels uh so I think this just naturally grew out of him visiting his parents who are still here in Memphis and he had a uh burst of inspiration wrote a bunch of songs um well also it was prompted by the uh how merge records acquired the rights to re-release our first four albums so uh home for orphans was released in june and so that was a perfect rationale to get the og lineup <laughs> uh you know to represent those albums as, you know, with the combo that made them. And uh, so that was, I guess, the genesis of the whole thing. And then it just felt so great playing together. I think that inspired a bunch of writing on his part. Yeah. W was it ever weird for you to watch, like, the band go out and do things with without you? You know, uh, yeah, that because I that, that, that's a good question, because I left first when um my wife at the time became uh pregnant with our second child hattie and uh she was very supportive my my ex-wife but was saying you know okay go out on tour and try and do your thing and i'll raise these two kids with just me and my extended family here but i you know and that was kind of what she did with our first kid uh, you know, it was right during the first wave of the Raining Sound tours, and we just did little short stints, but we did a few, and that felt like a long time to leave young Henry behind. Um, but uh, then when it came down to us raising a second kid, it just seemed like too much, so I bowed out uh, after pondering it and agonizing over the decision for months. Um, so then I would see them as a trio and I really liked it. It kind of reminded me of like an updated version of 
Carl Perkins showing up at Sun Studio, and it was just him on his uh, Gibson Les Paul and bass and drums and just beautifully stripped down. And uh, I enjoyed hearing it that way. But uh, so I guess it wasn't weird. You know, I was moving on in my life and I was happy to see them continue on. And in retrospect, I kind of wish I had stayed with it. But then, you know, I think ultimately, Greg, you know, when I left, we didn't know Greg would be moving to Asheville. But then he did, uh, I think, within a year. And uh, so it was probably, it probably didn't matter one way or the other. It was bound to just be a reflection of his evolution, you know. I'm thrilled that we're back together now, though, I must say. It's just yeah there's a certain chemistry the four of us have that uh the 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 whole is much greater than the sum of the four parts it's hard to describe but you can hear it in the records and i'm so thrilled that was somehow captured you know poured in a bottle yeah tell me about the new one that you guys um just recorded i guess you've uh you know you're listening to the masters of what what you know, people who are familiar with the bands are, I mean, is this like classic, uh, ripping raining sound? How would you describe this new material? Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, uh, in a nutshell, I would describe it as kind of a cross between the first and second albums. It has some rip roaring ones that just totally rock out. And in fact, it has one cover that we used to play back in the day, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I don't need that kind of loving, which is a obscure tune from Adam Faith from the British invasion years. Um, <clears throat> uh, so it has a bit of the Tom time bomb high school, you know, uh, total rock out, but also some really, um, evocative, quieter tunes also that are more characteristic of uh, breakup breakdown, although you hear that on Time Bomb High School also. So, yeah, I guess a cross between those two vibes, some really interesting, uh, more uh, quieter and very musical pieces where uh, there are some strings and I play some Mellotron on a couple tracks and oh nice but the main the main core of it is just the organ uh, Greg on guitar Jeremy on bass and the drums which was either Greg Robertson or uh, Graham Winchester so uh, yeah as we started I was thinking well should I rethink how I approach my parts in this band because in a sense I kind of just have a, a thing I do with the raining sound with the organ and from the beginning I've always kind of put myself in a position of imagining myself as Booker T. Jones moonlighting with a garage band or maybe like sitting in you know uncredited with one of those uh frat bands that started cutting with stacks in the late 60s when they were trying to branch out and uh it's always kind of worked and it's always kind of just come out of a gut level like using the leslie or you know what 
stops on the organ. And um, in the end, I just went with that, the gut feeling. And then later with that bed of the organ parts, you know, other things were added where we did experiment more like with the Mellotron. So, uh, that, uh, don't know where I was going with that, but I was very happy with the results. It just sounds like bedrock raining sound. And then with some nice extra unexpected bits sprinkled here and there. <laughs> cool. And when, do you know, uh, when that's coming out yet? Uh, late spring, something like that. May, oh, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Maybe oh. a single in April. Yeah. Hopefully we can have uh, some of you guys back on the show then to talk about that record in more detail. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait for you all to hear it. It's, it's great. Time out. Before we get back to Alex, I need to ask you to check out patreon.com slash JD Rieger. That's P A T R E O N.com slash J D R E A G E R and become a supporter of me and back to the light. Subscribers to the Patreon get ad-free versions of this show, exclusive music content, and more. Also, if you're looking for other ways to show support, you can subscribe to the podcast, share us on social media, or simply send a link to the show to someone who might like it. Everything helps. Thanks in advance. And now the ad. It's so great that the Raining Sound has taken on this longevity, and, you know, as a band, we've still got legs and... You know, there were a lot of young people at these shows on our last tour uh, in in March of this year. And, you know, that's so gratifying, especially because when I joined, it was almost like I had left a life in music behind. And it was almost like an afterthought. And I guess that's why I went with the collaborative thing of being happy to back up Greg's stuff. Because I felt like, you know, I moved to Memphis in the late 80s to pursue my own songwriting and, you know, form my own band, etc. But uh, I got kind of disenchanted with it and the whole process seemed a little bloated or decadent. And I ended up going to grad school and becoming even more politicized than ever and working and living in Central America and uh, all of that. And then settling back down in Memphis uh, after having gone through grad school and, um, you know, starting to raise a family. But, you know, then music crept back in and, you know, I lived right across the street from Greg Cartwright and uh, you know, just one thing led to another. So it was kind of the second wave of music in my life that was, uh, quite inspiring. And, and now it, it, it's like a third or fourth wave of music. It's coming back. It's almost like a retirement plan. Oh yeah. The raining sound just make really great records. And then, you know, you can tour on that in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, uh, maybe then, I, you know, maybe in 10 years, maybe my records will start coming around. I can start touring on those. Yeah. I think that's my <laughs> uh, investment advice. Forget the IRA 401k bullshit. Just make the resume records, throw it yeah. out. Just yeah. great records. It's all it takes. <laughs> 
for sure. <laughs> well, speaking of bands that you've been in that, you know, are uh, like uh, Memphis bands of, of longevity at some point in that process that you just described from moving to Memphis in the late eighties, Weren't you, weren't you briefly a member of the the Panther Burns, which is like a legendary Memphis outfit? Yes, I was. Yeah, um, it's funny because uh, I had gone to NYU and I followed the classic pattern of playing acoustic at open mic nights, um, uh, like down in the in the village, and then at, simultaneously. I was uh, learning about electronic music, and in fact, my minor in college was in electronic music and uh, things like sampling and computer synthesizers were just coming about in the mid-80s. And uh, so then I moved down to Memphis, and I had already fallen in love with Delta Blues and soul music, uh, listened to a lot of Wilson Pickett. Uh, literally as I drove down to Memphis to move here. Uh, so, you know, I had that interest. I just never really played with a band like the Panther Burns. And uh, it was a real education to, I didn't play with them a lot, but there in 89, I did a couple tours. Uh, sometimes I was just driving uh, my van uh, and then, um, Later, I became incorporated into the band as a keyboard player, and um, it, it was fantastic and raggedy and raw, and it was kind of a beautiful corrective to working in computer music and electronic music, even though I had dabbled in folk acoustic guitar stuff. Uh, this really was my awakening in rock and roll and of course at the same time i had my own band the weeds uh and we were pretty raggedy and i was just i was really playing uh lead guitar and rhythm guitar with that it was kind of a power trio thing so it was coming to memphis was this diving into more organic and more psychotic music so it was a short time, but that time with the Panther Burns was really, uh, it, it made its mark on me for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird running theme I seem to have on the show of people who have had stints in the Panther Burns because, I mean, there, there are just so many, honestly. Oh, yeah. If you look at the Wikipedia site, which has been very meticulously kept up by Lisa McGochran of the Hellcats and, you know, of the Panther Burns herself at times. Um, the list. Yeah, we're friends on Facebook. Okay, yeah. The list is just amazing of the alumni, if you will, of the Panther Burns. And I think, you know, it comes down to a lot of people can play this and that, but it it is really irreplaceable if someone like Tav comes along with a kind of vision or uh, just uh, an aesthetic that gives a, a group identity or a direction. And um, we've all been drawn to that uh, or alternately, alternatively uh, drawn to it or repulsed by it. <laughs> People come and go uh, from the outfit. <laughs> 
you know, growing up around uh, my dad and and Bob Holmes, also, you know, I've I've basically heard stories about Tav my whole life. Do you do you have any uh, funny Tav Falco stories that come to come to mind? Um. <laughs> No, I don't think any that I would want to share right here. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, That's fair. <laughs> I have, I'm just going to sit here and quietly smile as I think back on the untold stories that I'm not going to share with you at this moment. One day I may. Yeah, maybe next time I'm in town, maybe we can meet for a coffee and you can uh, share one of these stories with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about your uh, your your own music projects now. Um, you've been doing a lot of work in recent years under the name Alex Green and the Rolling Head Orchestra, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I uh, started the playing and calling it that uh calling the group that in 2009, uh, late 2008. And, but really it had been an idea I had had since moving back to Memphis around 2000. Um, and part of the impetus was I wanted a, a group that could play both like, uh, instrumental jams at the time in 2000, I was listening to a lot of Cuban music. And uh, for a while, Scott Bomar was in the group. We just had rehearsals in the uh, era of the rating sound beginning. I was also playing with, and I called it the Rolling Head Orchestra at the time. We just never played out. Uh, uh, but Scott Bomar was playing bass. Doug Easley was on guitar. And... Um, I forget the other folks, but it was, it had a kind of a Cuban direction. And, uh, so it's always been in this weird place between, um, uh, kind of primitive jazz and, and my own slightly jazz inflected originals, which you might call singer songwriter stuff, except I also aspire to write in the style of, uh, you know, the classic jazz standards, Tin Pan Alley, or Hoagie Carmichael, or, you know, Lerner and Lowe and that sort of thing. So uh, they're, um, there's, you know, kind of jazz informed, but it's not jazz rock like Steely Dan. It's more, <clears throat> it's more raggedy. And it's, I think it still has the Panther Burns Stamp in a way in its DNA, even though the end result is very different. Um, so yeah, basically, uh, 2009, we really got together in earnest and it was with Paul Buccaniani and, uh, on drums, John Whittemore on pedal steel and guitar, Mark Franklin, uh, who I had known, uh, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself cause I had known him, since my solo records in the nineties and, uh, <clears throat> eventually Jim Spake got on board and later Tom Leonardo stepped in on drums. And for a long time, John McClure played, uh, bass and, uh, he, he, you know, then I, I, I went through some others, but, um, 
it really has stayed true to that vision of playing both singer songwriter stuff and or uh jazzier uh numbers as the occasion called for so uh actually i think one of the first things we did was a burlesque show with a lot of kind of uh mambo infused numbers for the the strippers it was really great and uh and then we fell into a, a doing a soundtrack and that came out in 2010 the the actual documentary we were scoring <clears throat> and um so it's an all-purpose outfit what was the name of that um the name of the film which was uh, broadcast on WKNO and I think the Nashville PBS affiliate uh, is called Citizens Not Subjects, um, Reawakening Democracy in, in Memphis, something like that as a subtitle. But really, it's about the boss crump machine, which ruled Memphis from the 20s into the 50s. And beyond, if you consider, you know, his legacy, uh, the great thing about that as a musician was it gave me license to write in the style of all those decades. So I had one uh, piece that's almost like a Duke Ellington jungle band cotton club sounding thing called the Speakeasy Serenade. Uh, I had, uh, you know, jump blues and uh, that sort of thing, uh, kind of evoking the 50s and even uh, a couple groovier soul influenced pieces to suggest Memphis in the 60s. Um, So it was a great kind of all over the map uh, stylistically uh, kind of project. And it's just the kind of thing I love. And um but even as we did that, we would do um, my original songs playing clubs like uh, Bar DKDC or uh, The Buccaneer or what have you. And um, it, it really grew out of a songwriting, a, a turn that my songwriting took in the 90s where I started, you know, I'd always been fascinated by basically jazz rhythm guitar (laughs) i'm not a great virtuoso guy playing scales but i can play rhythm guitar like nobody's business and those kind of chord changes you hear in classic jazz tunes i started to work into my own writing in the 90s and you can hear it on one track roadkill samba which i first recorded on the loverly label it was a single that came out in 97, I think, or around, the, around there. And uh, so I kind of had this backlog of, yes, singer-songwriter songs, but uh, with that kind of jazz quality to the, uh, the songwriting. So uh, the Rolling Head Orchestra was just a perfect expression of that yeah i listened to a couple of things uh you know getting ready for this there was the record you guys did in i guess it was 2013 that's a bit jazzier i guess like you described and then um the one i really um focused on and the one i think we're going to play some tunes uh from uh after you know later 
is uh, American Elegy, which definitely kind of leans more towards the songwritery stuff. Yeah. Yeah, as far as albums, I try to keep things, you know, one or the other. Uh, and the the, uh, the thing from 2013, uh, which came out on vinyl on Bang Records out of France uh, in 2015, uh, that was the soundtrack to the Boss Crump movie. It's called Depression Jubilee. Okay. It's, it's on Spotify and iTunes. Got now. it. Yeah. I listened to a few off that this morning. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And that that's, you know, spanning the styles of music out of Memphis from the 20s to the 60s. Um, but, yeah, American Elegy you know, it has a bit of that. It's jazz informed, but it's, it's what I call primitive jazz. It kind of keeps a, or garage jazz, <laughs> if you will, because it keeps some of the raggedy quality of all my favorite Memphis bands. And, um, it's funny that I was, I started using the orchestra it's only, you know, six piece orchestra. So that's a bit of a stretch, but I started using those guys on those songs, even as we were working on the soundtrack stuff. And I had um, written a lot of them during the George W. Bush years. And they're very dark political songs for the most part. And in a way, trying to imagine, oh, my God, this is where we are now, you know, maybe writing in the year 2000, 2005. It'll, it's just going to get this much worse. And then um, I kind of put them away during the o Obama years because it seemed like they seemed alarmist or hard to relate to. And then... Uh, when Trump got elected, and as we saw through 2017, what a mess he was making of things and just how very bad things could get, I dusted those old recordings off and did a few final overdubs and mixed them. So uh, they feel very true to the Trump years and because they're, you know, they're no, there are no like overt protest songs like, you know, um, you know, no war in Iraq or something like that. The references, the references aren't specific. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a, a trying to capture the zeitgeist and, uh, you know, I think the, one of the ultimate political songs is Elvis Costello's shipbuilding. Uh, and one of my favorite artists, Robert Wyatt, had a version of that too. And, you know, that's kind of an oblique political song. And that's really what the songs on American Elegy are. And uh, I dusted off uh, these recordings, finished them up, Doug Easley mixed them. And uh, actually, most of them were cut at his place too. All of them, actually. Um, the, Was that the, the original Easley or at his newer place? The, the newer place. Yeah, on Kelly. Um, yeah, over just off of Park Avenue. But uh, yeah, so he mix, mixed them beautifully and they just fit the Trump zeitgeist even better than they fit the George W. Bush zeitgeist. <laughs> and um, 
you know, it, there's there's kind of a humor in there too. So it's not just like wallowing and oh, it, you know, it's not goth or anything. You know, it's 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 trying to walk a fine line of kind of politically aware and maybe critical. You know, a critical person trying to navigate the the pitfalls of of life in you know late period monopoly capitalism america so uh <laughs> uh i i was really happy with how it came out and uh you know because they're not super topical i think they could apply to these forces of uh uh oppression and corporatization that we're living under, you know, and we're going to be continuing to fight for a long time to come. So I think, I think that stuff holds up. Yeah. Unfortunately. So it seems that 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 material is uh, pretty evergreen as we say. Yes. Yeah. I, I wish it was obsolete. And for a while I, thought that and i just kept those recordings on the shelf (laughs) because a a lot of those songs literate like uh i did a remake of the song roadkill samba which i had first cut for loverly in the mid 90s and uh uh you know a couple uh, uh there was one more from the 90s but mostly they were written between 2000 2009 and um those were dark times too i think we are uh kind of polishing up george w bush's reputation in hindsight compared to trump but uh (laughs) those were pretty ugly times and i think that's when the republicans really perfected playing dirty yeah especially starting with the florida mess in 2000 and taking it to the supreme court and uh we may see a replay of that in the days and weeks to come yes knock on wood everything goes well but yes it's uh i remember all too well how quickly and how easily those those types can manipulate the system and get whatever result they want yeah 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 so i i I guess um, if I'm offering anything unique, it's like a perspective on those forces in our culture and just trying to live in a world like that. Um, but uh, from a, a, I'm, I'm trying to write from a kind of, kind of a timeless point of view. I guess it's very 20th century is what it is. You know, it, it, there's no like synthesizers on the record. I, I kind of went for a sound palette more like the band or something. And that's the beauty of the rolling head orchestra. You know, I can bring in pedal steel horns and just those things alone. Uh, you can create so many textures and, different uh uh i don't know different kind of harmonies and things with just very few simple uh 20th century organic instruments you might say which is kind of becoming a rarity these days i i guess you could file it broadly under americana but um it's uh it's a little different from the usual 
folk orientation of that too. Well, and, and speaking of things that you've done that are a little bit different, I think this is a good, um, maybe, uh, way to, to close. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was these, uh, silent film scores that the band did back in January. That seemed like a really cool thing. Uh, tell me about, about that project. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, that was the rolling head orchestra pivoting back to its, uh, instrumental mode basically. And, um, I had gone into Doug Easley's studio to record a handful of what I thought of as, uh, exotica kind of like Esquivel or, uh, you know, that sort of thing, less Baxter type tunes, a little campy, but also weirdly kind of oddball with the harmonies and melodies and stuff. And, um, that was around 2017, 2018. So I had these sitting around wondering what I would do with them. And then Crosstown Arts started sponsoring these live scoring events. And it just so happened it was when I was a resident composer at Crosstown Arts, which is a local nonprofit here. And uh, so as part of my residency, I had the state-of-the-art uh, scoring software called Sibelius. And, uh, I recruited, uh, five classical players from the Memphis symphony orchestra. They're in a little subgroup too, that they call blue shift ensemble. And they tend to do more, uh, avant-garde classical music. And, um, <clears throat> so I got, uh, a string trio and, a flautist and a bassoonist and then combine them with the Rolling Head Orchestra, which is more of the jazz band, and uh, then also added in a theremin player, a really skilled one, and they are hard to come by, let me tell you, but this is a, a former um, concert master of the Shoals Symphony uh, in Florence, Alabama, um, who for various reasons stepped down out of that, the Shoals Symphony, but turned her skills as a violinist to the theremin, like full throttle. And her name is Kate Taylor Hunt. And uh, that really uh, made the soundtrack we did really sore. It was really great. Anyway, uh, I scored out over an hour's worth of music for these two classic sci-fi films from the silent era. One is very well known, A Trip to the Moon, uh, by Georges Méliès, I believe is how you pronounce his name, uh, from a very early 1906 or 1904 or something. And then uh, that's a short 15 minute piece. And then uh, a longer feature length piece, uh, a film called Elita Queen of Mars. It was uh, made in Soviet Russia in 1924. And uh, that was a perfect vehicle for the sort of well, they both were. For the, it was kind of an old, creaky sound of all these organic instruments, uh, you know, from the brass and pedal steel and then the string trio and woodwinds all blended together. Uh, 
mixed in with just a tad of synthesizer because this is science fiction after all and then the, this beautiful theremin stuff that kate played and uh, uh it was just an outstanding night i think of it as really the my greatest achievement as a musician you know in retrospect oh wow yeah i i really uh am super proud of uh, how the players came through after there was only one rehearsal with the jazz band and one with the classical players. And we just put all the pieces together on show night and it, it worked beautifully. And, uh, it just, it has everything from like feedback, you know, rock feedback guitar, like you might hear with Neil Young's weld album, you know, courtesy of John Whittemore, who plays a mean rock guitar as well as pedal steel, uh, to the theremin, uh, mixed with, you know, classical overtones of the, uh, there's one showcase piece where it's just the classical players and, um, <clears throat> Jim Spake jumping in on bass clarinet with that quintet. So, uh, this just is all over the map stylistically and it's on Vimeo. I, I hope you can put a link to it. Just, it's a free link. It's, it's a, a filming of that night. So you see for the most of the pictures filled with the screen, uh, of the silent films being projected. And then along the bottom, the orchestra 12 piece ensemble playing my scores, uh, so yeah, send, send me the link to that and I'll definitely, I'll, I'll tweet it out and stuff when I'm posting this episode. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I yeah, sure for will. Sure. Yeah. My next question was going to be, how can people see this and hear it together? So that answers my question. Yes. I would only say, please watch it on a big screen if you can with big speakers, as opposed to scrunching down on a device or with headphones, you know, but the magic of the music really needs some good, uh, you know, hi-fi audio. <laughs> and I was just going to say also, I say it's kind of the pinnacle achievement of my life in music, partly because I love how the music turned out, <laughs> but also it, it literally draws from almost every time in my life because you soon find out that, with a silent film uh, and the cellist Jonathan Kirksey pointed this out to me because he's scored a few films with a silent film. You don't just have like a few cues and then, you know, there's dialogue between the music. You are filling every moment with some kind of sound, uh, you know, for a solid hour, hour and a half. And uh, that was kind of a challenge. Of course you repeat motifs and, you know, do new arrangements of certain pieces that you want recurring, but, uh, just to find the musical content, I searched back through all of these sketches I had done going back to high school. There's one little music cue in a trip to the moon. It's literally something I wrote in high school. Uh, just a little melody. Uh, and uh, somehow it's stuck in my head all these years. And then I proceeded to draw from music I had recorded and, you know, maybe just as a sketch here and there, uh, 
from the 80s onward. So it was really wonderful as this, uh, just as someone now in their mid 50s to be able to, you know, I was glad that I had kept all those things, you know, all those little sketches and, you know, that I was able to, you know, sort of make them culminate in this, this one musical statement. So that is my statement on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where I'm just sort of curious where, um, you know, after doing something like that, that is so deeply meaningful to you, like, and, you know, you've called it like the greatest, your greatest achievement in music. I'm curious, like, where, where do you go from there? Yes. Well, the idea was to have a reprise performance of it in, in August at the Continuum Festival. And then um, we were looking at other silent films to do similar partnerships with Crosstown Arts over uh, with the same musicians. You know, some people make that uh, a ongoing project. Uh, there's uh, there's a group out of Boston called the Alloy Orchestra, uh, and they actually tour around with films. I saw them here in Memphis uh, doing a live score to uh, Rudolph Valentino film, Son of the Sheik. And uh, I would just adore doing something like that. But then, of course, we did our show January 23rd and then February and March were more about the raining sound for me. And then boom, it was lockdown. And, uh, I, I'm hopeful that, uh, I can do something, maybe, uh, an outdoor screening of silent films with the musicians properly distanced, maybe in the spring. And I'm actually talking to a couple venues about that, but it's in these pandemic times, it's just a long drawn out process trying to imagine, you know, what life will be like in six months or 10 months, but it will happen again. Yes. Sure. Or I mean, six, six weeks, six months, yeah. <laughs> um, man, it'd be super cool if you did, if you did that thing at the drive-in, that would be that would be. Super yes, cool. that's true. Uh, I talked to. I used to play with the subtractions just between films at the drive-in. Uh, Mike McCarthy has his Time Warp series he does with Black Lodge, and uh, we talked about even then how you could pipe in perfectly mixed live performed music. Uh, through the car radios that everyone listens to the movies on. Uh, oh, so, so cool. Uh, it would be a simple matter to be creating live music. Uh, you could even be on the roof of the concession building or something and just have it go straight into their broadcasting system that goes into the cars. Uh, so, yeah, that could happen. Uh, there are actually a few... Uh, outdoor venues uh, i know the levitt shell has screened movies before they're not really doing anything now uh also there's a new place called the grove right adjacent to the germantown performing arts center and they are starting to have movies so far not combined with the live score but that might be something that could happen so yeah, there are there are possibilities. I'm not giving up because it was 
it was a thrill. And, you know, I'm really interested in any kind of soundtrack work. Um, I, there was another film that I was supposed to just to be scoring, you know, in the box using my studio, not with a live score, but, uh, just as a recording project. And of course that fell through with the quarantine also, but, uh, Anyone out there in podcast land uh, with a pitch uh, to take me on as a soundtrack composer, please do so. Be in touch. Well, cer- certainly I hope that um, that you're able to resume some of these projects soon and hopefully get out on the road with uh, Raining Sound next year and tour on that record. Yes, absolutely. Fingers crossed all the way. We're very hopeful that... Something will open up some space where we can live again and play again. <laughs> well, excellent, man. This, this has been great. Um, I think we did well for ourselves. Is there anything you want to point people towards, uh, you know, maybe your band camp or, or some other the website? Yes. Um, I would say, uh, there's, uh, my band camp, which is just, uh, under the name Alex green with an E and that has American Elegy. With three uh, E's, actually. <laughs> right. Or four, if you yeah. count Alex. I always tell people the N-E is for Nebraska, because that's where I'm from, <laughs> a farm right near Memphis, Nebraska. There's but a that's Memphis in Nebraska? Story. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of neat. They have an amazing bait shop. Uh, <laughs> really great. So, <laughs> But um, probably not shaped like a pyramid. <laughs> nope, no. Nope. But they they have an Elvis uh, poster somewhere in the bait shop, I think. So they know their roots. Um, yeah. So uh, I would also recommend a website, this remixmemphis.com. <clears throat> Just all one word, Remix Memphis. Uh, that was a project I did. Uh, using field recordings of sounds from around the city of Memphis. And then I gave that library of sounds to different musicians and producers to create their own musical tracks that evoke Memphis. And uh, there's a a lot of great talent on that uh, from Tony Menard, who's a great songwriter uh, to I make mad beats, great hip hop producer. And some of the other producers from the unapologetic hip hop crew, uh, Robbie Grant from uh, big ass truck, who I also played with. Uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, Paul Taylor, Alicia Trout, uh, all kinds of great people. Uh, I have a track on there with my other electronic group, uh, called the egg capital e g g g uh so you can hear some of those tracks on the remixmemphis.com website and uh i'm in the process of uh uh <clears throat> remaking my personal website which is alexgreen.net <clears throat> i'll let you know when that goes live uh but there's a Rellinghead Orchestra page on Facebook, and uh, you can keep up with us there. And uh, the Bandcamp I mentioned, and uh, yeah, that's probably it. Cool, man. Well, this was great. Thanks so much for uh, taking some time out on Saturday on 
the day that you know we finally find out what's going on with this thing um i appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today oh yeah absolutely my pleasure jd thank you for asking thank you alex before we close the show, I want to play another one of Alex's tunes off of American Elegy, which once again you can find at alexgreen.bandcamp.com. This is the title song of this episode, Banking on Disaster. Oh, the forests have all fallen. Yeah, they lay across the road We saw it all go down in the office lounge while we ate our alamode That's life waking up in the tower where all the princes talk in code or play with the latest in remote control The climate in this cubicle Lord, it just suits my clothes All the walls are beige Numbers turn the page so slow It's been said that we will reap Penning the words we sow Disaster. 
to wash my living clean to make my heart beat faster and shake some green back down to me. Like a noose I keep my eyes Glued to the white line Cause the steering's A little loose Smoke coughs out My tailpipe When I step down On the juice Get me to the job On time Or you ain't no use that's the show thank you to my guest alex green thank you to arthur with two h's for the opening theme song thank you to joey pegram for the closing theme thank you for listening and until next time take care y'all of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.